Good morning. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. Final greetings. Titicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I'm sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn Read the letter from Laodicea. To Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's now on and I'm on. Great. Hello. Hello, everyone. Those at home and those here. I've got to be honest with you, I much do prefer talking to you face to face than on a screen. Uh, Gosh, I'm glad that's all over. Uh, So we've come to the end of this precious little letter to the to the Colossians. Um, I don't know about you, but you might have a precious letter at home. I know for myself, I have a great bag full of them because when I first met my husband, Mark, a long time ago now, I was about to go to Africa. In fact, I started in a very, very remote place in the middle of what was then Zaire. It's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And you had to to fly literally for five hours at what 
over what looked like broccoli, just jungle, to get to this tiny little place. And so we only got post every few weeks, maybe every five weeks or so. And my dear husband, as he is now, who was just a friend at that point, he wrote a letter five weeks before I left the country so that there would be one waiting there for me. I know. And that letter, I think, is in our loft somewhere. So this is a precious letter. And obviously, my letter um, hasn't been copied and read out uh, over the centuries. But this one, of course, has. And what an amazing letter it is for us. We've had incredible theology, haven't we? That amazing chapter one where Paul talks about Christ, the supremacy of Christ, how he is above all things, and how he is the image of the invisible God. It's like that great reveal, isn't it? What is hidden is now made seen. And so we can know what God is like by looking at Christ. And then, of course, we had unpacked for us the cross and what Christ did for us, what that victory over sin really looks like. And then in chapter 3, there's that beautiful bit about us, those of us who have been made alive in Christ, those of us who follow him, and how we can actually live his life. We can be people who are patient and kind and compassionate. But when we get to this bit of the letter, the last bit of the letter, it gets really exciting. I love it because this part of the letter is like the practical outworking of all that Paul believes. This is the bit where we learn about real people in real situations. And this is the bit that we ourselves can relate to very easily. So I'd like us to pray. I'd like us to pray that as we read about these people who lived a long, long time ago in a very different culture, in a very different place, we can hear what God is saying to us here in Winchester in 2022. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, open our ears and open our hearts to what you, the Spirit, is saying to the churches. Amen. <clears throat> we do think about the church, don't we, as a global movement. There are churches all around the world, and I know that a lot of us have very heavy hearts for the church in the Ukraine. I don't know if you know, but the small Anglican church in Kiev is actually called Christchurch, and the church that I worshipped in in Amsterdam for many years is also called Christchurch. But, you know, we're not united because of our name. We're united to them. We're connected to them because of Jesus, aren't we? So, when we look at these people that Paul was writing to, we read that the first two, Tychius and Onesimus, are his postmen. They're the people who came from Colossae and visited Paul, who was in prison, possibly in Ephesus, about 100 miles away. And they brought with them news from this small congregation in Colossae and probably told Paul about some of the problems that were being experienced there with false teaching. So Paul writes this letter, what we now call the uh, letters of the Colossians, and he sends it back with them. But he writes another letter as well. He writes a letter that we know of as 
uh, Philemon. I think it's pronounced Philemon. It could be Philemon, but I'll say Philemon. And so I really encourage you, when you get home, just to read, it's just a page long, that letter to Philemon, because it absolutely goes with the letter to Colossians. It's like chapter five, if you like, of Colossians. So Tychius and Onesimus take these two letters back to their home church, their church in Colossae. And I really believe that dear Onesimus would have been holding that letter to Philemon with some fear and trepidation. Because what's happened is that Onesimus used to be a slave in Philemon's household. Philemon is a church leader, a slave owner, and Onesimus used to be a slave of his, but he ran away. And we believe that when he'd run away, he then became a Christian and met Paul. And he's now really asking Paul to be like his representative to to um, write to Philemon on his behalf. So you can see Paul is in this really tricky, pastoral, complicated situation. And Paul writes to Philemon saying, please forgive Onesimus and please accept him back into your household as not just your returned slave, but as a Christian brother. And I think this is just such a precious story, isn't it? Because it's actually a story of reconciliation, a story that Paul, will, Paul is part of. He's actually, it's the outworking of what he's been writing in all of his letters. Paul wants the church to demonstrate this unity, this connectedness, that we are one family. And this is the living example of exactly that. Because God brings together things that are often separated. God brings together Jew and Gentile, old and young, black and white, rich and poor, gay and straight. God brings together things that are often separated. Let us pray for Christians in Russia and Christians in Ukraine. How can they find some unity in Christ? So, with these two, Paul sends greetings from Aristarchus, Mark, and Justus. Now, it might be that Aristarchus is actually in prison with Paul. <clears throat> but what we do know, we don't know about the others, but what we do know is all three of them together are co-workers. They are on the same team, as it were. They're in ministry together. But it wasn't always like that. We read in Acts chapter 15 that there was a sharp disagreement between Paul and Mark. It turns out uh, that Barnabas, Barnabas and Mark go off together and Paul and Silas go off together. So there was a parting of the ways between Mark and Paul. Because, of course, the Bible tells us about real people with real problems and real disagreements. When we read about the early church, I think we see the church that we have here today. We see a church that is failing in many ways, a church that is divided, a church that's misled, a church that is broken. 
I truly believe that Paul must have wept many tears over the behavior of some of his fellow Christians and possibly, of course, over the behavior of himself, just as I'm sure many of us have. Because churches cause pain. In fact, I think sometimes the pain that we experience in church is often worse than the pain we experience outside of the church family. People leaving the church causes us pain, even when they go to another church. People's disagreements cause pain. Relationship breakdown causes us pain. Bad behavior causes pain. People giving up the faith. All of these things are things that we must be real about. They happen, and they happen here as, a, as anywhere. Some of us have been reading Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, and he writes this really beautiful thing about disillusionment. He says that it's God's grace that brings us to a place where we recognize our failings. I'll just read a little bit from him. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it has sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and tries to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great general disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and, if we are fortunate, with ourselves. Many people are deeply disillusioned with the church. And I believe we, as the church, need to hear that. And we need to listen to them. We need to hear what they are saying. And we need to act accordingly. So we just pause for a moment and just pray uh, silently. If there are, is hurt that you've experienced or if you know that others have experienced hurt from the church, let's just bring that to God. It is true that the church can be the place where we experience the greatest pain. But it is also the place, isn't it, where we can experience the greatest healing. And this little tiny reference to Mark is um, a wonderful picture of that healing. Paul tells the church to welcome Mark because Paul and Mark have experienced reconciliation. They are co-workers again, and Paul is rooting for Mark. The church is the place where relationships are restored. The church is the place where teams are mended, where ministry is reinstated.
so Paul can talk about Mark, Aristarchus and Justice, his co-workers, as a great comfort. And I do love that word, comfort. It reminds me of the Holy Spirit, the great comforter. And I think to myself, who are the people that bring us comfort in the church? And that comfort isn't just about making us feel better. That word comfort is about encouragement. It's about spurring one another on. It's about knowing each other so well that we can challenge each other and help each other become the people God wants us to be. So who do you have who comforts you? Who do you have who walks alongside and challenges you? The three other people Paul sends greetings from are Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Luke and Paul, we know, are very close. They ministered a lot together. They traveled extensively together. And sadly, we read about Demas in uh, 2 Timothy because Demas, Paul says that Demas deserted him because he loved the world. And that causes Paul pain. He writes as though he feels abandoned by everyone except Luke. But I believe we can learn so much from Epaphras and from the prayer that he prays. Both Paul and Epaphras pray for the same thing. And perhaps prayer is the answer to what we experience in church, that bringing it to God and to pray and praying what Paul and Epaphras pray for the church. Epaphras prays that the people of God would know the will of God and that we would stand firm and be mature and fully assured. And Paul prays the same thing at the beginning of Colossians. He talks about working strenuously to present everyone mature in Christ. So I thought I would just think a little bit about what this maturity looks like. Because what Paul and Epaphras are looking for is for humans who are flourishing, humans who are confident and sure about what they're called to do. They're looking for people who are living the life God gives them to live, a life worth living, confident and full of gratitude. So, maturity. What does maturity look like? Well, I think there are two marks of maturity that I just want to draw out. And this is not just Christian maturity. This is maturity generally as humans. I think the first thing is that to be mature is to recognize our own limitations. I know that might sound strange, but I think the more mature we become, the more we are able to accept our own limitations. Because I believe that the more mature we become, the more we realize how much we need the other. There was a radio program on Radio 4 the other day, and it was actually a program about desire, but they were interviewing a psychologist, and he said that Perhaps in the past, we have thought about maturity as being growing from dependence to independence or interdependence. But he was suggesting that what we are learning now is that as humans, we need to grow into an attitude of dependence, that actually 
to become mature is to realize that we depend on others, that we need others, we need their support, their care, their help. Perhaps the last few verses of this letter, if they say anything at all, it is that we can't do this alone. We need each other. And the other mark of maturity that I'd just like to draw out is this attitude of thankfulness. Again, this is great wisdom, isn't it, that comes all around us. And I always think wisdom that comes from anywhere is also wisdom from God. God is the source of all great wisdom. And you can go into a bookshop now and buy journals that help you be grateful for things, that you can write down each day what you are thankful for. But, you know, you read it here first. The Lord knows, doesn't he, that that attitude of gratitude is what he wants from us. And it's what makes us stand firm. It's so beautiful because when we are grateful, we are less critical. I don't know if you, perhaps like me, sometimes have moments of critical thought in church. And I thought to myself, perhaps when I feel that critical thought coming up about somebody or about the choice of song or about something, anybody, anything, perhaps instead of feeling critical, we turn that to thankfulness, to thank God for the people who are leading, to thank God for the people who've chosen the song, to thank God for giving us people who perhaps cause us to feel things that we then need to take to God. And so how can we cultivate that attitude of gratitude? How can we cultivate this thanks living that we've been talking about? It really isn't just about singing praise and worship, although that is wonderful, especially without a mask, <laughs> I have to say. But it isn't just about singing. Of course, it's about daily looking for beauty. It's about asking God to help us notice his goodness, help us notice how his love is expressed through another. It's about learning to be grateful even in the most difficult or darkest of times. Because, of course, this is the maturity we see in Paul. At the end of his letter, he takes the pen and he signs off. And he says two things. He first of all says, remember my chains. He wants us to count the cost. He knows that living the Christian life is not easy. It's hard and it can cause us pain. And we also need to connect ourselves with the pain that others are going through. The dear theologian John Stott talks about how we must read the Bible with one hand and the newspaper with the other. Because we need to know the pain of our world and we need to bear it. He doesn't want us to be ignorant. But the last word he has is grace. We sung it, didn't we? What amazing grace we have. Because it is the grace of God that will keep us standing firm. Ultimately, it's God's grace that does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is by his grace alone that we can be those people of thankfulness. 
God's grace means that when we can't, he can and he will. That he is for us and that he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So it's by God's grace that we as a church can be the people of hope, the people of reconciliation, the people of light in this dark and broken world. May the grace of God be with us all. Amen.